0: This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 395.
1: What we're seeing is that the pandemic, we don't know what the exact other side's going to be. You know, we're going to end up going back in person, increasingly so, but the digital side's not going to go back to zero because we've learned how to get good at this and companies in every industry is going to have to figure out how to blend both digital and physical.
0: Business leaders are continually told they need to embrace digital disruption wholeheartedly in order to thrive in the 21st century. Legacy companies we hear are all doomed to fail unless they double down on the latest digital innovation and disruptors are ordained to take over the world. Digital innovation is the answer to everything. Well, my guest today says that's not true. Nothing in life or business is ever that simple. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. And that growth is achieved, of course, via the books we read, because I believe that if you want to achieve true success in business and in life, that intentional and consistent reading is a must. My guest today is Robert Siegel, author of the new book, The Brains and Brawn Company, how leading organizations blend the best of the digital and physical. I plan to ask Robert to share about why he feels digital transformation isn't the answer to everything, uh, examples of companies that effectively blend the digital and the physical. I'll ask about the impact of the pandemic on the 10 competencies he outlines in the book, and much more. You know, one company in my view that's done a great job of blending the digital and the physical is our sponsor for this episode, and that is Scriptco. If you've ever thought it would be nice if your prescription meds arrived on time every month, neatly packaged on your doorstep, or if you've ever thought, wouldn't it be great if I was actually saving money for that convenience? Well, Scriptco indeed has the answers to those issues. It's the first online pharmacy that puts the power of wholesale medicine and home delivery into your hands. Haven't you spent long enough letting insurance companies decide how much you pay for your prescription meds? Well, at Scriptco, they've cut out the middleman and given the power over to you. They shop around for the absolute lowest price anywhere on the medicine you need without the insurance price hike. Then they send the best deal to your door. And with a Scriptco membership, you save big with access to wholesale prices on your generic medications. And they make it easy to figure out how much you could be saving. Check out their free savings calculator at scriptco.com. That's s-c-r-i-p-t-c-o.com. And because you listen to this show, you can save even more. Get $25 off your initial membership with the code READ25. That's R-E-A-D-25. Once again, visit Scriptco.com to check out their free savings calculator and save 25 bucks on your membership with READ25. Robert Siegel is a lecturer at Stanford Graduate School of Business. His work includes a teaching graduate in executive education classes and doing extensive research on such companies as Google, Schwab, AB InBev, Stripe, and SurveyMonkey. He's also a partner at Silicon Valley venture capital firms XSeed Capital and Piva or Piva. He'll correct me here in a moment. And he sits on the boards of several startups. His new book is called The Brains and Brawn Company, How Leading Organizations Blend the Best of the Digital and the Physical. Robert, welcome officially to the Read to Lead podcast.
1: Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here.
0: Well, I want to start by asking you, if, if the hype is to be believed, digital transformation is priority number one for companies today. I want to know why you are someone who is Flat out tired of hearing that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So being at Stanford and at the heart of Silicon Valley, so much of what we do as, as as a university and even I as a venture capitalist is about the move to digital and digitization. But I found that in my time as a venture capitalist, that companies would come in and pitch the the firms that I'm involved in. And they really didn't understand and appreciate what happens in the physical world, even if they were supplying products to the physical world. Um, and similarly, in a couple of the courses that I teach at the Graduate School of Business, I found that a lot of the what I'll call the physical incumbents that were embracing the digital DNA had a lot of competitive advantages that a lot of people didn't appreciate. And I thought that the notion that digitization was the panacea was kind of incomplete, mm. that it seemed that the companies that were really performing well, be they incumbents, or disruptors were the ones who blended the best of both worlds. And the more leaders we studied, the more companies we studied, how they develop products, how they organize their companies, there really was an appreciation and understanding of both the digital and the physical. And I think the aha we had was that that's what we see on a go forward basis. And then the pandemic just kind of accelerated all of that.
0: So, so there, there was a singular moment then where it just kind of hits you that, that this framework came together. Is that right?
1: It became very personal when the pandemic started. Mm. Uh, So it was, I think, March 7th of last year of 2020. uh, And we all got an email that said, hi, we're going virtual Mm. starting tomorrow. (laughs) And they basically said to the faculty, you got to figure out how to teach on Zoom. Mm. And so it was the last week of the quarter. And we all kind of stumbled through it for a week. Like it wasn't a big deal. And then I had two weeks to figure out how to redesign three courses that I teach in the spring in a virtual setting. Mm. And, you know, as a teacher, it's an apprentice business. You're taught to be a teacher. You're taught how to run a classroom. And at most business schools, things are often taught Socratically with cases, or there's exercises, it's experiential learning, but it's very physical. You're in the room with the students. Mm. Well, all of a sudden you're on Zoom and it's kind of more like television. And so I had to rethink and redesign how I was going to be teaching. And so as I invested in my home office and turned it into basically my virtual Stanford teaching studio, Mm. I added multiple monitors, higher res camera, studio lighting, and a lot of the work that I had in training that I had received, you know, when I had operating roles at places like Intel and GE, or even in my startups, I realized I had to incorporate that media training into interactive teaching. And that was my aha, was that teaching was never going to be the same. Because as we Mm. got into this, all of a sudden, we could create some pre- pretty rich experiences that wasn't just me lecturing at a camera. I could be very interactive with the students by, you know, bringing in, you know, competencies and capabilities and ways of not only the, the academic research that we do, but how to make it a little bit entertaining and a little bit to use the medium by which we were communicating with the students. And that was when I realized everything wasn't going to be the same anymore.
0: Hmm. Robert, how does your, uh, would you say your diverse background inform, you think, the way you view this sort of digital physical divide?
1: I've been so lucky in my career. And by the way, better to be lucky than good. Uh, you know, I kind of have this background where I was an operator in both large and small companies. Mm. I've been an investor and I've also had the blessing of teaching at Stanford where like amazing men and women come to my classes, not because I'm so charming and good looking, but because it's Stanford. <laughs> and so you get kind of the, what I'll call the academic analytical capabilities. You also get a financial investor's perspective. And then I'm bald and my beard is gray from all the mistakes I made running companies. So, I have that ability to actually see and hopefully empathize with leaders of large organizations. Mm-hmm. you know I get to even teach one of my classes with Jeff Immelt, my old boss from g e mm-hmm. uh, and then I spend you know every week with with lots of startups and entrepreneurial CEOs as they're starting their companies. so I think that I hopefully was able to and in the book capture a unique perspective that covers that investing, operating, and academic mindset. And in the academic side at Stanford, that gives us access to people that we wouldn't otherwise normally get to understand how they're thinking strategically about their businesses. Mm-hmm.
0: What is, would you say, one of your favorite examples of a company that has has mastered both of these these worlds?
1: You know, the easiest one to highlight is Amazon, right? We shop online online you know, on our computers and on our phones Mm. to buy things. But look at like Amazon has become an operational and logistics powerhouse not just with the fulfillment centers but you know with Amazon Prime which is kind of up there with fire and the wheel as greatest invention <laughs> ever like you know and so like their ability to get us what we want when we want it we actually don't have to deal with that you know you're going to the drugstore to buy toothpaste and they're out of stock of your favorite toothpaste you just buy it on Amazon mm. and so their ability to make that happen is kind of the one I think we can most easily relate to and as we looked at kind of the digital and physical we were were able to kind of come up with five different digital attributes and five different physical attributes. And we were Mm -hmm. able to study a lot of different companies that were kind of best of breed in each of these 10 categories, Mm -hmm. ergo the framework of brains and brawn. But I think Amazon's the easiest one for all of us to go, oh, yeah, you're right. They are a digital company and a physical company. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, with your work with uh, tech startups, what would you say was some of the traditional competencies that that startups often overlook or or, or maybe even underappreciate too?
1: Well, so a couple, I think logistics and manufacturing is something that startups like don't really internalize and and understand, you know, the mindset, even if they're making a digital tool, uh, a health device that people will wear, understanding how to manage supply chains well, understanding what goes involved in manufacturing is not something that many of the men and women that we graduate out of computer science departments really understand because they're behind a screen writing code. But what happens when a component gets end of life? How do make sure that that customers can, you know, get a product and how does it go from factory to distribution to delivery. That whole kind of is a kind of a black box to many of what I'll call the digital natives. Uh, I think another one is government relations. You know, sometimes larger physical organizations when you're dealing with things like healthcare or mobility or financial services are used to having to work and navigate with government. Uh, And that's not something Silicon Valley has had a strong history. in. in fact, we've had a there's a libertarian streak in Silicon Valley of it It was great. Like we were here on the West coast and Washington DC was 3000 miles away. And that was awesome. Like leave us alone. (laughs) And you can't do that anymore Mm. in a world where now technology is embedded in every product, where every product's connected, and you are you see tech companies moving into industries that are regulated. I found that a lot of you know the startups really don't have an understanding of the art and appreciation for dealing with governments and how to work with governments, and not just in this country, but all over the world.
0: Hmm. Well, let's say I'm at a traditional company and constantly facing this pressure of trying to digitize uh, to stay relevant. What are some of the the key competencies that, that someone in that situation should focus on?
1: So let me start first with the, the easy one, analytics, all right? And mm. data, you know, you've got a lot of information on customers, and it's not just enough to hire a bunch of data scientists and a bunch of data engineers. That's almost kind of like the ticket to the dance. Part yeah. of it is understanding how you're going to be using this, you know, this data and this information to serve customers better. And so like one of my favorite examples is Charles Schwab. You know, Charles Schwab is an organization that has almost seven and a half trillion dollars of customer assets that have been deposited. They're a huge financial services organization and they know a lot about us. Right. When we when we have our money there. One of my favorite stories that Walt Bettinger will tell, while being the CEO, is that if a customer goes to the website and, and chooses life events, divorce, Schwab knows at that moment in time that an individual is headed for potentially a a change in their marital status and in fact schwab might know even before the spouse does and the thing that schwab does which i found very interesting is the question they always ask themselves is what would our customers want us to do with that information And so, for example, their mindset is through client's eyes. Like that's the kind of the mantra. So just because they have data and have information, they try to kind of think long and hard about what should they do with it. And I'll juxtapose that to Facebook. Obviously, Facebook worth a trillion dollars, very profitable business, but like no one likes or trusts Facebook. Like broadly speaking, conventional Mm -hmm. wisdom is we believe that they will use our data to whatever is in their interest, not necessarily in our interest. I think that, you know, you have to have the data analytics side and the capabilities to make sure to know how to gather data make sure your products are connected, how to do something with it. But also like don't lose sight of that moral compass, that North Mm -hmm. Star as to why you're using the data and why sometimes you won't use the data.
0: Mm. There is one example that uh, Robert shares of two attempts at radical transformation. Uh, One at a company that tries to add brains and one at a tech company that tries to to master brawn. Uh, What are the lessons here for other companies that you discovered as you you unpack this? So
1: you're referring to uh, the, the analysis we did of both 23andMe, the healthcare company based here in the Silicon Valley, and Daimler, you know, the, the amazing German automotive company. And when we analyzed the two companies, it was very interesting. 23andMe, who gives us, you know, our DNA sequencing and can give us ancestry information, and they're now using their database of almost 12 million people uh, to deliver specific drugs to for treatments, uh, you know, that, that might be harder for traditional pharmaceutical companies to do because they get all this great through saliva, through spit and software. They get mm. those great data. And so what they did is they're great at data analytics. They're great at, you know, serving customers. They're great at, you know, empathy. Like they really understand they're dealing with healthcare. And Wojcicki is an amazing leader about understanding, kind of a lot in, empowering all of us to control yeah. our healthcare. But she partnered with GSK, the large British pharmaceutical company, because she didn't want to build up a manufacturing competency. So in the frameworks, you know, we have five brains, five brawn, you know, the, mm. the analytics, we, we, We talk about um, creativity, we talk about empathy, we talk about managing risk and balancing partnership. And then on the brawny side, we talk about logistics and manufacturing and operating at scale and shaping your ecosystem and surviving over time, stamina, and did a pretty good job of filling in partnerships in areas where they weren't that strong. Let me juxtapose that with Daimler. With Daimler, they were obviously great at all the brawny categories, unbelievable manufacturing, mm. design, supply chain. They know how to operate globally. They've done a horrible job of analytics. They've done a horrible job in partnering um, because they wanted to do it all themselves, and they didn't have a lot of those competencies. Mm. And they've really struggled. We've seen how Tesla has eaten a lot of their market share at the high end. And what was hard for Mercedes, in particular, you know, for that part of Daimler that sells the luxury cars, their business was going pretty well during these transitions, largely because of sales into China. But we got to the other side of this, right, where all of a sudden the world's changing and Tesla really took off. And Daimler's right now in a world of hurt. Right. Mm. They're going to have to transform their business. And they, I would argue, even though they did a lot of activities trying to understand you know, digital, they didn't really kind of bring in the right people. And at scale, they were really fundamentally a brawny company that paid lip service to the brainy side.
0: And that's really hurt them. You talked a little bit about the uh, pandemic, COVID. What would you say ultimately was the pandemic's impact on these 10 competencies?
1: I think it accelerated them. We, we read about how digital e-commerce became, you know, there was three years of acceleration uh, into, you know, basically 10 months. Mm. Um, a, a friend of mine works at Roblox, the gaming company, you know, that went public. And, and he's, his comment was, yeah, we accelerated our business plan by two years because everyone was home gaming, especially a lot of kids. <laughs> um, but what, what really happened on the, the brains and brawn side is you saw companies like Target, which had a pretty good front end for digital shopping. And now you could, for example, order your groceries online and then drive to the stores and have the groceries delivered right to your car, mm. which is a great example of blending digital and physical, where you know you, you shop on the front end, the logistics side gets it fulfilled, you get to the store and it's like put in your trunk in, in a contactless manner. And you saw that they they actually accelerated their rollout because of, of the pandemic, because there was you know such demand from their customer base. And so I think as we look through all of the, 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 the 10 brains and brawn attributes, you're seeing that it became and has become just increasingly important. In my role as a teacher in the last 18 months since the pandemic started, in my home office, I have taught audiences in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, Sao Paulo, Brazil, Stuttgart, Germany, Kuala Lumpur, uh, and Chicago. Right. Mm. And that's basically, that's just in one week. And I'm able to, you know, have those kinds of experiences. So I think what we're seeing is that the pandemic, you know, we don't know what the exact other side's going to be, you know, we're going to end up going back in person increasingly. So but the digital side's not going to go back to zero because we've learned how to get good at this and companies and every industry is going to have to figure out how to blend both digital and physical.
0: Mm, Well said. Well, I've got a a couple of questions, Robert, I want to ask you not directly related to the book. Before I do that, though, is there anything else from the book I haven't touched on you want to make sure we know?
1: I would say the last thing is the type of leadership that's going to be required is is going to change in the future. That I think that we call it in the book systems leadership, and it's this idea that you know in a world where everything's connected, you have to understand that when data and information is flowing constantly from companies to customers and through the channel, leaders need to be able to understand the system and understand the flow. And by that, I mean they need to understand what happens inside of an organization when two functions interact, you know, be it manufacturing and sales. How does what the sales team Directly impact what manufacturing needs to make. How do you understand what's happening in your industry and in your ecosystem? You You know, do you understand an influence map of what's going on because people are so increasingly interconnected and companies are increasingly connected? And we found that great leaders of the people we studied, they know how to operate at intersections. Right? They know how to manage and hit their numbers operationally, but they also know how to manage innovation. Mm -hmm. They know how to manage context because communication becomes increasingly important. Uh, Jeff Immelt, who I mentioned earlier, loves to say truth Equals facts plus context and mm-hmm. great leaders need to be able to manage the context for their customers, for their employees. Uh, they need to have a product manager's mindset of n- understanding and knowing what do customers need? How does something get made? How do you get your organization to move? You know, and then, and lastly, I'll say that they run towards the disruption. You have to go risk on like you have it's going to happen anyways. And great leaders, great systems leaders actually run right towards the disruption. Mm.
0: Well, as as I talk to many authors, as I do, I find that often they are rabid readers uh, as well. I think uh, good writing starts with consistent and intentional reading. I'd be curious to know uh, the impact of reading on your life. How would you say the habit of reading consistently and with intention has played a role in, in your success or, or has it?
1: I, if I, I don't know, first and foremost, I don't know if I'd call myself successful. I'm just a guy trying to <laughs> kind of get through life one day at a time and be a good <laughs> husband and a good father and a good teacher and a good investor. Um, I'll let other people determine where that fits. Mm. Um, I, it's funny, with reading, strangely enough, here we are talking about books and I find that I actually read fewer books mm, okay. as, a, a, and not that I don't enjoy them and love them, but I spend so much time reading on my computer, you know, during the day, mm. whether I'm doing email or, or, or whether I'm writing something, you know, I'll often be checking seven or eight news um, sites as to what's going on. Mm. And I find that through my work at Stanford, I'll be reading papers and things that have been written by my colleagues or people at other locations. Mm. And so I find that the, when I get a wide variety of reading perspectives, you know, I learn. And when people will share stuff with me, not in fact, I don't read anything that anybody shares on Facebook because that's kind of worthless. But when somebody <laughs> sends me an article that says, hey, Rob, I thought you might like this, I pay attention to that. And mm. I find that what I really enjoy is when people will send me perspectives that I haven't considered. Mm. I think that, that what one of the downsides of a world in which we're always connected, sometimes it's hard to find uninterrupted time to read a book. Mm. You and I are talking now, if we had our cameras on in my home office, I've got books on the back bookshelf behind me, all of which I've read, mm-hmm. but I find that it's sometimes it's very, very hard for me to find the time mm. to read a three or 400 page book uh, as often as I used to. Um, I will often, if somebody sends me a book that, that that it was important to them, I'll read it just because that gives me insights into who they are. Mm. Um, I would say that the, the reading is something I do all the time. Right. Um, Books are a small part of what I read.
0: I don't know if you know this or not. This is kind of meta, but um, there was recently a book written to help you find more time to read books called uh, Read to Lead. Maybe a little bit too meta, but uh, nonetheless, it's there in case you need God, it. <laughs> that sounds awesome. I should check that out.
1: <laughs> but I will say this. Reading is this, probably the single most important way I find to actually grow and expand my mind, mm-hmm. to grow and expand my perspectives. Yeah. Um, because I think sometimes it's in the quiet when you can actually process what somebody has said, mm. um, that we actually have the ability to think more deeply about topics, uh, and think about the nuance of things the, the, in a world that increasingly has less and less nuance, mm. nuance is becoming, I think, even more important.
0: Well, even though you're not doing as much book reading uh, today as maybe you once did, uh, historically, is there a book or two that stands out as having had a huge impact on you at any point?
1: A couple. I was really lucky when I was a twenty-six-year-old snot-nosed kid to do (laughs) Andy Grove's research for only the paranoid survive. Oh. And, and it was not just the, the the information in the book but also that time in my life when I got to work closely with Andy mm. uh, it was a huge impact and I, and I refer to it a lot Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay on self-reliance had a big a big big impact on my life you know I was in college when I read it and I found it very inspirational to you know, kind of believe that people and individuals could be empowered to do good and to do well and to think original thoughts and their own thoughts and yeah, yeah. and not have to go along with what with the conventional wisdom. I remember when I read, strangely enough, Howard Schultz's book about pour your heart into it, w- w- which was when Starbucks was really taking off. What yeah. I always loved about that is it just gave insight into that, like you could love your job, like like th- yeah. that work could be something that you derive meaning from as well as passion. Mm. Uh, so, so you know, those are three random things that come to mind that probably had a, a long term impact on me and my view of the world.
0: Mm. Well, now that the book is out and you look ahead to the rest of this year and on into 2022, what's got you excited? What are you looking forward to?
1: The biggest thing that I am interested in is actually something that's becoming a big push at the Graduate School of Business. Mm. My belief is that communication and collaboration tools are not going to slow down. right, They're only going to increase. And so the nature of how organizations are going to work is going to change. Globalization 1.0 was largely what I would call a hub-and-spoke model, where basically we would put low-cost manufacturing in a part of the world, low-cost engineering in another part of the world, low-cost customer service in a different part. It was about labor arbitrage. Mm. And what that allowed companies to do, they said, "Okay, good, now we're global companies. The positive side of it is we all got cheap televisions. The bad (laughs) side of it is we had displacement of labor and capital, which led to a rise in populism. Mm. And because we did not do a good job of thinking about kind of, well, what's it going to mean for the people whose jobs move somewhere else? And we basically abandoned them. And then, by the way, that happened everywhere, mm. right? It happened in Europe and South America and North America. And so since these trends are going to continue, the stuff that's going through my head is is that I think globalization 2.0 will be organizations will operate much more like mesh networks with nodes that are basically of equal size and stature, Mm. but in collaboration and communication will be even better. Now, if we think about this, what this means from a geopolitical standpoint, the 20th century was defined in geopolitical conflict around political ideology, fascism versus Western democracy, followed by communism by Western democracy Mm. after the Second World War. The 21st century is going to be shaped by, I'm going to call it economic ideology. At the extreme, and just to trigger everybody just because it's fun, (laughs) dictatorial capitalism, unfettered and uncontrolled capitalism, and Mm. democratic socialism, which is basically, you know, kind of the loaded words I'm using for China, the United States, and Europe. Mm. And the question that I think is when I think about the young business leaders of today, they're going to have to deal with business and political issues in ways that my generation and your generation never had to. Mm. They are going to have to understand, you know, since economics is going to be at the crux of a lot of these conflicts, how are they going to do business on a global basis? Mm. How are they going to work with governments? And it's not just kind of globalization like it was before. Even somebody like me, who's maybe teaching in my home office, people all over the world, much less multinationals, every leader is going to be having to think about kind of the broader inner interconnectedness. And by the way, there's going to be tension in this interconnectedness. Mm. Where do we put jobs? Right? Manufacturing jobs actually become marketing. And as we move to new technologies like additive manufacturing. Right? All of a sudden, now you can put the factory not somewhere that's where labor is a low-cost component. You can put the factory at the customer site <laughs> where they can make parts for whatever it is that they're looking to do. We're going to have to completely rethink how we organize companies. We're going to have to completely rethink how we interact with people in other parts of the world and how government and national interests are going to shape abilities to work and not work. And so these are the things that I'm starting to you know, maybe start to build a broader sense of what my classes will be like over the next five to 10 years mm,
0: fascinating well the book is available now where you buy your favorite books it's called the brains and brawn company how leading organizations blend the best of the digital and physical his name is robert e siegel robert thank you so much for uh, visiting us today on the read to lead podcast i'm so glad to have had you here
1: jeff thanks so much it's a real honor and pleasure to be
0: here For a summary of this week's episode, to connect with Robert online and check out those resources that he and I shared, visit the show notes page for this episode. All of that is at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 395 for episode 395. Wanted to let you know that I'm beginning to open up spots in my schedule for 2022 to make room for in-person and virtual workshops. I'm currently offering two different trainings for companies and teams. One half-day workshop is called Developing the Reader Within You, where we spend our time diving into the concepts from my new book, Read to Lead, the simple habit that expands your influence and boosts your career. The other training is titled Dream Big, the five personal habits that will supercharge your life and your career. They're offered separately, of course, but also together for a steep discount. If you'd like to talk about it further, just reach out to me, contact at read. ReadTolleadbook.com. That's contact at readtoleadbook.com. Well, if you've ever had the desire to publish your own book, next week's guest, Julie Broad, will be here to help us with that. That's next time on the Read to Lead podcast. Well, that does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember leaders read and readers lead.